going to put on pause the series on praying like Paul and Jesus. But there's a reason why I'm putting that on pause. It's not because I don't like the series, but um, God has been doing something in my soul this week that I think I need to go in a different direction a little bit. And it's Psalm 46. I think it was Tuesday morning about 2 a.m. I woke up and discouraged. Have you ever been there? Something's just discouraging you and you're just like troubled about things. And, and so as is my habit, if I can't sleep, I put both feet on the ground. I go downstairs, open up the Bible, and dive into the book. And for whatever reason, I turn to Psalm 46 that morning. And I was like, I've got to do battle. I've got to wage war against this discouragement. I can't allow it to overcome my heart, my mind, my soul, all of those things. And so pulled up my little trusty prayer memory app, and I plugged in Psalm 46, and I started working through Psalm 46. And I was surprised I had never uh, actually memorized that passage before, but it, has, it was absolutely beautiful that evening for me, that morning, I guess. Wednesday morning, same thing, 2 o'clock. You started thinking maybe it's a coffee that I had. <laughs> Same thing, discouragement was like right there. And I pulled out that app and I started going through Psalm 46. And, and all week, every spare moment, I was just like going straight there. Because I want to do battle. I want to wage war against discouragement. Now, I don't think discouragement is only for those who are in ministry. I think discouragement is something that we all struggle with at different times. But I really do believe that as believers, we're to wage war against it. And the way that we do that, well, there's a few ways that we do that, but um, uh, one of those ways is, is God's Word. I think the other way is to pick up a phone and call somebody that loves Jesus that will point us to God's Word. And another way is to pray, and, 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 and it's often good to do that in the context of each other. But since my head was in Psalm 46, even though I was studying Philippians chapter 1 to prepare a message, I was like, you know what, this is the message that God has been speaking to me all week, and so this is the message that I'd like to share with you. And so that's where we're going to go today. Next week, Lord willing, we'll pick up in Philippians chapter 1 and look at the prayer of Paul and how does Paul pray. So is that fair? No? Yeah? <laughs> Okay, we're going we're gonna to go there regardless. I don't know what I was going to do if you said no. Dumb question. But Psalm 46. Man, it's a beautiful psalm. As David was reading it again. It's just like, ah, oh, this is beautiful. Beautiful. You know, as we, as we go through this psalm, before we actually dive into it, let's just take a look at some observations. So I encourage you, have your Bible open, and let's take a peek at some of these things in here. Uh, notice that on the front end, it's a song. Most, actually, the psalms are meant to be sung. And, and this was given to the choir master, the sons of Korah. We're not really sure what according to Alamoth means. It's probably something, some type of musical direction. But it's obvious it's a song because the next word is a song. And so the 
the songwriter wrote this in some situation that we're not totally sure. And they would sing it in a gathering similar to this. And then I think what they did is when they went home, they would whistle the tune and sing the words. Maybe when they were discouraged, maybe when they were downhearted, maybe when they were happy, but they sang these words. These were the words, a song, one of the songs of the people of God. Notice as you're looking at your passage, there's this little phrase or word called selah three times, the end of verse 3, the end of verse 7, the end of verse 11. Again, those are, are lyrical, uh, a lyrical word. We're not completely sure what it meant, but it's probably there was a pause, maybe a pause in even the instruments at that point as they were playing. Notice in verse 7 and verse 11, the refrain. He says it twice. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Again in verse 11, the Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. You probably saw some of the big themes in this passage. Kind of the front end, it looks like there's this great chaos going on. The mountains are falling into the sea. But you also see this idea of the kingdoms are tottering. They're being moved. They're, there's uncertainty in the world. And yet in the midst of that, notice throughout, there's this idea that God is with us. God is with us. God is with us. God is present. The word moved is used three times. Uh, some of your translations will vary, but verse 2, the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea. Speaking of just almost apocalyptic uh, language there. Then in verse 5, it says, she, or verse, yeah, verse uh, 5, she shall not be moved. Talking about the city of God. Then in verse 7, my translation says uh, the kingdoms, uh, verse 6, I'm sorry, the kingdoms totter, but it's the exact same word. It could be the kingdoms move. And so there speaks of movement and non-movement, and it speaks of God's presence and God's peace, and it's just a beautiful, helpful passage. Psalm 46. I encourage you to memorize this. I have in my office uh, Lynn's study Bible. She didn't know it was gone. Actually, she knew it was gone, but she had borrowed it. She was using another one, and, and so she had, I had her study Bible for about six months in my office. And, and as I was um, studying the text, I noticed in the margin she had written, memorized with, and she put a name there and was a friend of hers that, number of years ago struggled with cancer as well and passed away and they together memorized this passage and I thought isn't that interesting I'm I'm memorizing this and, and Lynn did several years ago it brought peace to both of them Psalm 46 just for sake of some clarity maybe some organization uh, I'm going to just break this up into three it's hard to do because it's poetry but Let's just break it up into three sections. There's this idea of creation is in chaos. You can kind of look, see that in verses 1 through 3, but it goes beyond that. And then there's this uh, idea that the city of God is unmovable, and you see that in verses um, 4 and beyond, maybe 4 through 7, that the kingdom of the city of God or the kingdom of God is unmovable. And then 
starting already in verse 6, but going to the end, you get this picture of the kingdoms are temporary. The kingdoms of this world are temporary. So you've got the creations in chaos. The city of God is unmovable, and the kingdoms of this world are temporary. And throughout this whole section is God is present. That's what I want you to see. Let's start at verse 1. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Our refuge and strength. What, what, what's a refuge? A refuge is a shield or some type of covering, some type of protection. That's what a refuge is. And so uh, God shields us. He is our shield. From whatever the onslaughts are, he's our shield. Not, not the things that God gives us as the shield, but God himself is our shield. But not only is he our refuge, he's our strength. He's our power. He's, he, he's what enables us. Again, not what God gives us, but God himself is our strength. A very present help in trouble. I love that phrase. It's hard to translate. But in the midst of trouble, not only is he our help, but he's very present. He's right there. So 2 a.m., when you're discouraged and you read this passage and you go, God, you are here. This is good. Thank you. Therefore, verse 2, we, not just he, but we, because they're singing it together, we will not fear. We will not fear, fill in the blank. But he paints this picture of incredible destruction. It's almost like he's been watching YouTube videos of Yellowstone erupting and the earth is falling apart. Though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the hearts of the sea, Though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. He paints a picture that is almost unbelievable. If I, if I look to the west and I see those mountains, I'm going, there's nothing that's going to move them. And he's painting a picture of those mountains slipping into the sea. And even if that's happening, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. I don't know about you, but have you ever felt and sensed that the world beneath your feet is moving? Nothing stable. The psalmist says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Now what's interesting in verses 2 and 3, he's actually painting a picture that is complete opposite of Genesis 1, verse 9, the third day of creation, when, when God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear, and it was so. And God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas, and God saw that it was good. God put this creation together, and now he's painting a picture. If the very opposite is happening, God is still present. Then verse 4, oh, this, this will sing. I hope it will preach. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. 
The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice, the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Bible scholars have been debating, when was this written? We don't know. But I think uh, Motir has, I think he's on to something when he says, I think the psalmist was thinking about the time of Hezekiah. 2 Kings chapter 19, verse 35, we read these words, And that night the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when people arose early in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. Then Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and went home and lived at Nineveh. And as he was worshiping in the house of Nishrach, his god, Adralamach and Sherezer, I'm probably butchering their names, his son struck him down with a sword and he escaped into the land of Ararat. And Eshardon, his son, reigned in his place. About 701 B.C., about, we're pretty certain that's when it was, the superpower, the Assyrians, had marched down and were going through Judah They had wiped out 46 cities of Judah, and they were now surrounding Jerusalem. We know that this not only from 2 Kings, but we know this from Chronicles, and we also know this from Isaiah, but we also know this from the the annals or the histories of, of King Sennacherib. The superpower had marched through and taken city after city after city. Actually, Sennacherib's father and brother, had already wiped out the, uh, the, the northern ten tribes of Israel back in 722 B.C. and had, had brutally butchered and murdered the leaders and carried the people captive by hooks back to Assyria. The, Jew, the Jews in Judah knew that he was coming. It was only, it was only a matter of time that he was coming. And so King Hezekiah, a godly king, began to prepare. He actually built tunnels. There was a, there was a spring, of, and you can, you can go to Jerusalem and see those tunnels today. There was a spring just outside the walls of Jerusalem in the Valley of Kidron that he took that water and he tunneled it underground into the city of Jerusalem and the Pool of Siloam that we see in the Gospel of John, that they filled up. So they had water, and they could plant, the, they could water their crops, and they could they could drink from this, and they would have some some an ability to at least stand for a season. It took him probably some four years to build that tunnel. It's fascinating the way they built that tunnel because they built it from both ends. And today, architects and and, and engineers still wonder how they did it. They think what they might have done is by by hammering the rock on the top of the ground, they directed the the tunneling underneath. And sure enough, by the time Sennacherib decided to show up at their door, the tunnel was was prepared, the water was flowing, and the people in Jerusalem had water. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God. When we read those words, there is a river. Could it be from the, that, that, that water that was underground that brought them, possibly? 
Sennacherib came to the edge of the city. 185,000 soldiers surrounded the city. They were building sieges, siege ramps to, to, to overcome and, and, and conquer the city. And, and like every other city, it was only a matter of time till they did this. In order to discourage the people, they spoke in the Hebrew language to the leaders out loud so that the leaders and, and the people heard, don't trust in Hezekiah. Egypt's not going to help you. We've already taken care of them. Don't trust in your God because he hasn't helped anybody already. Give yourself up. Now they knew that giving themselves up would be murder for the leaders and would be hooks and brought back to a land that wasn't belonging to them. But what was their options? Eventually time was going to tick away. Everything seemed like it was lost. And what does Hezekiah do? Hezekiah prays and he goes to the prophet Isaiah and the prophet Isaiah says God will act. You can read it in 2 Kings chapter 18 and 19. Incredible story. But in that little passage that we read on that very night an angel of the Lord came and wiped out 185,000 Assyrians. Sennacherib, actually in his annals, talks about the siege of Jerusalem, but it's the only city that he talks about not defeating. Of course, he doesn't speak of his loss. Sennacherib goes back home, and he's killed by his own two sons. God not only answered the prayer, God, God acted. It wasn't, it wasn't the power of the people. It wasn't the army of the Israelites. It was God who acted. And as that passage we read, it was in the morning when they woke up, they looked out and they saw what God had done. It, it, it seems to fit. Look at verse 5. God will help her when morning dawns. Look at verse 8. Come, behold, the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes war cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters a spear and burns the chariots with fire. God does this. So what is this river? Was it that tunnel that was... I think that's a picture, but as you look at this passage... What is that river? Psalm chapter 1. Do yourself a favor. Turn back a few pages to Psalm chapter 1. The Psalms start like this. Verse 3 of chapter 1 says, He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and all that he does he prospers. Who is this tree that's like a tree? Who is this person that's like a tree planted by streams of water? Verse 2. It's the person who delights in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He's the person that gets this book during the day and in the middle of the night. He spends time, she spends time memorizing, meditating, thinking about this book. But not just the words on the page, but what this book points to. This book is all about God. As we pour over this book, we are introduced to, we come to know a person, the creator of the heavens and the universe, our Savior, Jesus Christ. 
And when everything around us is withering, we are unmovable. That's what Psalm 1 is talking about. What's going on in Psalm 46? What is this river? I believe the river is none other than God. God is our refuge and strength. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. When the mountains are being moved into the heart of the sea, when the waters are roaring and foaming so that the mountains are trembling at the swelling of the water, those of us who know this God will not be moved. That's what the text is saying. That's crazy. If there's such natural chaos... Don't you think that that will affect us? Of course it will. But we will be okay. We will not be moved. That's what the text is saying. And, and at 2 a.m. when you're discouraged and, 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 and downhearted and, and, and you're, you're telling yourself all kinds of lies, what you need and what I needed was, Lord, who are you? This is who he is. This is who he is. What in the world, what need I fear? What need I be discouraged about? Nothing. Now, if this was just a fairy tale, if this was just like somebody made up a story, then then none of this would none of this would make sense, but but we know we have a God who has entered into the, the history of humanity on a number of occasions. One of them was the story of Hezekiah that I just read to you. But a bigger one was Jesus Christ 2,000 years ago. You see, not only God the Father has, has entered human history to help the people, he's in their midst, but we know from, from, from the, 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 the New Testament story that that he sends his son to dwell among us. And before he, he ascends into heaven, what does he say? He says, I will not leave you as orphans, but I will send you a comforter, a helper, the Holy Spirit. That's remarkable. And so with all that going on, the nations rage, verse 6, the kingdoms totter or they're moved. He, he utters his voice and the earth melts. When God speaks... In Genesis chapter 1, when God spoke, excuse the sound effects. Verse 8, we have this creation and chaos. We have this city of God that's unmovable. But verse 8, we get to this place. The kingdoms are temporary. We already see that in verse 6 that I just read. But in verse 8, he tells us to do something. Come, behold the works of the Lord. And remember, they're singing this, Okay. But he's reminding them to take a look at what God has done. And I think he's going, whether, whether the psalmist was actually writing about the 
at the time of that event? Or are you saying, guess what? I want you to remember what God did back there. But he says, I want you to behold. I want you to see what God has done. And he's calling us to do the same thing. Two in the morning, what is he calling Elroy to do? He's saying, Elroy, get on your knees and stop and look at what, God, look what the Scriptures say of who I am, but pause and think about what God has done. What has he done? Well, there's, there's, there's oodles of things we can look to what he's done, but ultimately, what has he done? If, if you're going to take down a, a, a city in an attack, what do you want to go after? You want to go after their stronghold. You want to go after what their strength is. You want to take out their airports. You want to take out their, their armies. That's where you want to go to win the battle. What did God do when he wanted to win the battle? He sent Christ, and he went after our enemy. He went after sin. Because of our sin, because of our rebellion against God, we have no, no right to be in the presence of God. And so God sent Jesus to die on our behalf to take the penalty of our sin. That's incredible. That's amazing. That's what God has done. He went after the stronghold. And in going after the stronghold, he could also, he could also deal with death. was death. Death is a result of our sin. Separation from God. Not only physical, but eternal. And so not only did Jesus die and take the penalty of our sin, but Jesus also rose from the grave never to die again. Conquers death. And he says anyone who puts his trust, his faith in Jesus, what happens? Eternal life. That's what gives Micah hope. Nothing else. Nothing else. Nothing. We're told, come behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. The people of Israel pause and go, Lord, we should have been destroyed, but somehow in the middle of the night you sent an angel, you took out 185,000, you actually took out the leader. And Hezekiah had peace for the rest of his, of his, of his uh, rule. So we can do the same thing. You know, suddenly at 2 a.m., my circumstances hadn't changed. None of, us had cha- none of those things changed. But suddenly my eyes didn't see torment and movement of, and chaos. Suddenly my eyes began to see the God who was with me. And I said, I don't know what's going to happen. But I know I'll be okay. Now, being a man of little faith, that meant I had to go over this passage over it and over it and over it and over it again throughout the week. That meant I had to proclaim it to you because there's, 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 there's help when we, we share what God has taught us. And what I love about this verse is the, probably the verse that most of us have heard at some point in our life is verse 10. And it's really an odd verse. Most of the, most of the passage, well, actually all of the passages, the psalmist is writing 
and, and speaking about God. And all of a sudden, in verse 10, God speaks. Be still and know that I am God. I'm the Lord. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. And so you've got the psalmist singing to God and about God and what God has done, and there's just this sense of amazement, and all of a sudden, God speaks. Be still and know that I am God. And at 2 a.m., that's what the Lord was saying. Elroy, quiet down, relax. Know, understand, trust me. I don't know every one of your situations, but I know some of your stories. You probably need to hear this. If you don't need to hear this today, you probably will tomorrow or the next day. But we're told to behold the works of the Lord. We're told to, to remember, to recall that God is with us. Who is this God? If they were to hear this voice, it's a command, be still and know that I am God. And then he says something that's fascinating. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. That's a promise. You know how the Lord has taught us to pray? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We're to pray that God's kingdom would come, his rule, his reign. God himself promises right here that that will happen. When I watch the news, it doesn't look like it's going to happen. But it will. God will be exalted among the nations and in the earth. So Elroy, relax. Trust him. It doesn't make sense right now, but it will. Then that last phrase, which we've already had in verse 7, but I really didn't touch, and there's a lot of things I didn't touch in this chapter, but we'll touch verse 11. The Lord of hosts is with us. Who is this Lord of hosts? That means the master of the armies. The one in complete control of everything. This is a picture of power. That's who's with us. The word Lord is Yahweh, the name that, that, that God shared with Moses and says, this is who I am. So it's not only this great God of power, but this one who said, I want a relationship with you, the people of God. That Lord is with us. But then, Verse 11 ends with, the God of Jacob is our fortress. And you go, okay, well, who, who, who's Jacob? Well, if you know the story of Scripture, you know that Jacob is the grandson of Abraham. So there's Abraham that God gave the promise to, that through him all the nations would be blessed, through his offspring, through his seed. Then there was Isaiah, uh, I mean, sorry, Isaiah, Isaac, his son. And not a lot is talked about Isaac, but he has two sons, Jacob and Esau. If, if, if I wanted to hang out with two people, I wouldn't hang out with Jacob. 
and I want to hang out with Esau. Now, Esau had his problems, but Jacob was, his name means deceiver. You go verse chapter 26 to the end of Genesis chapter 50, and you go, this guy is just a scoundrel. Everywhere he turns around, he's manipulating and deceiving. That's who he is. Nothing nice about him. Even when it comes to, when God makes a promise to him, he says, okay, God, well, if, if, you, if, you, uh, if you come through on this, then, I'll, then, then you'll be my God. And it's not till many years later that he actually follows up on that. And God was Jacob's God. You see, before Jacob was born, God had made a decision that he would be the God of Jacob. That's what it says in Genesis. That's what it says in, in, in Romans. That, that's, a, that's, that's remarkable. Why, why Jacob? The God of Jacob is our fortress. As I read that passage, I go, not only is he the Lord who, want, who's, who said, is made a way for a relationship with us, not only is he the all-powerful one, but he's the merciful God. I don't deserve to be the friend of God. I don't deserve to call him my God. But in his grace and his mercy, he's called me, he's chosen me, he has sent his son to die for me. He's done that for all of us, and that God is our fortress. This is also known as Luther's psalm, the mighty fortresses are God. God is our fortress. Uh, if you go back to the days of Hezekiah and they were singing this song, you can go, whoa, they, 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 there was comfort in the song. There is comfort in the song today. God is our refuge and strength, the very present help in trouble. Let's pray. Lord, thank you. Thank you that you didn't just leave us to figure things out down here on our own. You know, as we stare at the mountains, Lord, we, we see a glimpse of, of your greatness and your majesty. But we don't see you fully. And I thank you for your word. Because it's in this glorious book, this love letter that you've given us, that you've you, you allow us not only to hear about stories, but you, you allow us, oh Lord, to get to know you, to see who you are and what you've done. And in our moments of weakness, Lord, you've given us a place to run. You. Thank you. And Lord, although creation may be in chaos and the nations seem to be tottering, Lord, those of us who are your people, the city of God, we, we recognize and we understand that you are with us, that we will not be moved. Help us to trust you. Help us to trust you. And Lord, as we, as we are going through this season of prayer as a church, churches, a church, we're, 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 Lord, we're your body. As we're, as we're doing that, Father, 
pray that we'd learn to sing this song. Trust you. May your kingdom come. May your will be done. Would you be exalted among the nations, O Lord? Would you be exalted in the earth? In your name we pray. Amen. This morning I'm going to, off the cuff here, I'm going to ask Jay and Andrew, both of you to come up. I'm going to go sit down with my dear wife. I saw her. Oh, she's back there. <laughs> I may not sit down with her, but could you guys lead us? Thank you. Please stand.